welcome to our final segment of Typology. Tonight we are going to dive into several books, uh, all the way from Hosea to the prophet Malachi. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a warning, we're going to kind of clip through several of these really, really quickly, and then we'll kind of slow down on some of them uh, to kind of expound a little bit more. But um, for those of you who may just watch this for the first time online, and instead of going through the whole thing, you jump to the very last session, uh, let me just give you a working definition of what typology is. It's basically an event that occurs in the Old Testament that finds its fulfillment in the New Testament, whether that be in the life of Jesus, whether that be in the judgments of God, uh, whether that be in the church. Uh, it's something that actually happened that finds a greater fulfillment later uh, in Scripture. Uh, it's kind of like this. Um, I am 41. I will be 42 here in the next couple of months. And I noticed something that happened to my body uh, about a year ago. It started happening to my eyes. Um, I was driving down the road uh, at night, and all of a sudden, um, I couldn't make out what street signs said. Um, I was actually traveling. I was in South Florida, and I was driving, and I was looking for a road, and I couldn't tell what road it was. I, I could barely make out different letters. I couldn't see. Uh, later in the trip, I found that even the giant uh, speed limit signs. I couldn't see, which that's really bad if you can't see speed limit signs. And, um, and so when I got home, I went to the uh, optometrist and I got a pair of glasses. And uh, you will rarely see me wear these in public, um, uh, but you will always see me wearing these when I'm at home, when I'm watching television, when I'm driving. Your faces are so much clearer now. I'm telling you, it is like night and day difference. I can see the speed limit signs. It's amazing. I can see cars that are in front of me. It's, it's, really, it's really a good thing. Um, that is kind of like what typology is. Um, the Old Testament, there were things that happened. And although we could tell that they were things that happened, it was like a stop sign. I knew it was a stop sign, but it was kind of blurry. I couldn't tell exactly what it was, but I knew it was a stop sign, or, or excuse me, a speed limit sign. Um, in the Old Testament, there are events that happen, and even though we can't tell exactly uh, everything about them, when we turn to the New Testament, it's as if there's a lens that goes over our spiritual eyes, and now all of a sudden, the things that were kind of blurry and we only partially understood, now we see them clearly. That's exactly what typology is. And so tonight what we want to do is uh, we want to go through uh, from Hosea to the prophet Malachi. Um, we want to start in the book of Hosea. Now to give you a little bit of a backdrop for Hosea, Hosea is a prophet of God. And when we find Hosea, um, we hear the voice of the Lord come to, to Hosea and God calls Hosea to marry a woman who is caught in prostitution, at the very best, adultery. She is a uh, very promiscuous woman, and God calls the prophet to marry this woman. Now, I'm going to tell you, if uh, someone came today that was a pastor, a prophet, evangelist, whatever, and they told me, Corey, God told me to marry this woman who was a prostitute, I would probably take up issue with that. I would probably, uh, I would be a little skeptical. Uh, I would probably uh, need to be talked down a little bit. But the reality is this, it's what happened. Scripture says this is what happened, that God calls him to do this. And in the, in the, in the outflowing of their relationship, what begins to happen is that every now and then Hosea wakes up in the morning and his wife Gomer, she's not there. 
She's gone. She's uh, off running with other lovers. She's finding other men. He uh, wakes up in the morning. His heart is distraught. He knows what she's out doing. And the spirit of the Lord speaks to him. And he says, go retrieve your wife. Go and get, get Gomer. And so he goes and he brings her back. And just time and time again, these, these types of activities happen. And so what we find in the life of Hosea uh, as a, a foreshadowing is we see that Hosea was faithful to his unfaithful bride just as Jesus is faithful to his unfaithful bride. Jesus called the church his bride. He's the bridegroom, but we are his bride. In the book of Timothy, this is 2 Timothy, this is what Paul would say. He would say, Timothy, even if we are faithless, in other words, when we go astray, when we do not do all that we know that we should do, when we don't do the things that we should and we do the things that we shouldn't, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is he's saying it's not that God can even be faithless. He can't even be unfaithful to us because he can't deny who he is because the element of unfaithfulness does not exist in the person of God. God is wholly faithful. As a matter of fact, Jesus would be labeled as the one who is faithful and true. And so what the Lord is doing here is he shows us Hosea who's faithful to an unfaithful bride is he's giving us a foreshadowing of God's love for us. He's saying, listen, there are going to be times where you're unfaithful to me, but as your bridegroom, I'm going to retrieve you. I'm going to come after you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring you back into my loving arms. Number two in your notes with Hosea is that not only was Hosea faithful to his unfaithful bride, but Hosea paid a price to redeem his bride just as Jesus paid a price to redeem his bride, the church. Listen to what Hosea 3, verses 1 and 2 says. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, or his people, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. And so Hosea says this, so I went and I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. So in the same way that Hosea, not only does he go to pursue his wife that has basically abandoned him, he doesn't just go to pursue her, but he says, I'll pay whatever it costs to get her back. And it's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. First Peter says it like this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as gold or silver that you were redeemed or bought back. The word redeemed means that you were, you were retrieved, you were bought back from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But you were bought, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so in the same way that Hosea retrieved his unfaithful bride. He also paid for his unfaithful bride in the same way that Christ has done for us. Moving into the book of Joel, we find that Joel spoke of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit just as it is seen in the book of Acts. So this is what we had said before that uh, some of the typologies that we find in some of these prophets are not clear picture typologies. They are more prophetic typologies. They're statements that made that 
then are fulfilled later on because all of typology is prophetic in nature. So in the book of Joel, chapter 2, this is what Scripture says. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, we find the fulfillment of this prophecy in Acts chapter 2. As Christ has ascended into heaven, the, the church gathers and they pray. And at a certain point in time, the Spirit of the Lord falls on them. There are tongues of fire over their heads. They begin to speak in other tongues. And then throughout the book of Acts, we see individuals who are filled with the Spirit at different times. So in one way, we see that fulfillment. But most scholars believe that, again, this is a multi-layered fulfillment. That not only was the outpouring of the Spirit prophesied in Joel found its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, but there's also coming a day in the latter days where the Spirit of God will be poured out again and fresh and new, and it will be fulfilled in that way. It's a foreshadowing of the work of the Spirit. In the book of Amos, the prophet, Amos spoke of selling the righteous for silver just as seen in the life of Jesus. So Amos is speaking here, and he's speaking by the word of the Lord, and he's, uh, he's talking about all the, the unfaithfulness and the debauchery of Israel. And in, in Amos chapter 2, this is what he says. He says, Israelites even sell innocent people for silver. Okay? Now, this may seem like a very passing statement, um, uh, when I first began to kind of study this one out, I thought to myself, I thought, uh, you know, am I trying to make something work here? Am I trying, remember we talked about this early on, you can kind of make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. That's not our job. We're to communicate what scripture says, not what we want it to say. And so as I looked at this, you know, it was one of those mind games where it was like, man, am I just kind of trying to, to make this work? But the reality is this, is that although it may seem like a minute coincidence, all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture was uh, uh, providentially overseen by the Spirit of God as the people wrote it. And I believe that in this moment, as Amos is talking about Israel selling innocent people for silver, he's not just talking about in his day, but he's talking about the Messiah who would be sold for silver. The innocent Messiah, Scripture says in Matthew 26, that one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the high priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out 30 pieces of silver. It was a man who was pure and innocent and blameless and sinless, innocent that was sold for silver in the same way that the Israelites would do in the book of Amos. Obadiah spoke of God judging the nations just as seen in the book of Matthew and various other places in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 25, this is where Jesus speaks of the judgment when the Son of Man comes in his glory that uh, he'll gather all people and he'll separate them and he will bring judgment. Obadiah speaks of uh, some, a foreshadowing of that judgment. In the book of Jonah, um, we have a couple of different things here uh, regarding this prophet. Jonah, number one in your notes, was to reach the Gentile nation just as Jesus would reach Gentile nations, okay? Now, you remember the story, the prophet of God, um, he is raised up and God calls him to go to the great city of Nineveh and to preach repentance, mercy, graciousness, all of the stuff. Jonah ends up 
rebelling, and, and we find out why later, um, but Jonah ends up going his own way, and the story kind of evolves. We'll get into that here in just a second. Um, but I want to point out one of the, one of the main reasons that, that we've discovered that Jonah did rebel against what God called him to do. Now, is there ever a good reason to disobey the Lord? No, there's never a good reason, um, but there are times where there are understandable reasons, if that makes sense. Uh, let me show you a photo here. Uh, this is a photo that was found in the, um, um, in the uh, 5th century BC, I think it was, or 6th century BC. And basically um, what it is, this is from the city of, of Nineveh. And what it, it is depicting is it's showing what Ninevites would do with those that they had captured. Okay, so they're prisoners. This is uh, kind of a process that moves along. Uh, one of the first things they would do here on the left-hand side of the screen, you see a man with uh, a knife here, and he's holding the head of uh, a person right here. And we're not sure if they're actually gouging out the eyes or cutting out the tongue, um, but we know that this is symbolic of that. As it moves on, uh, you find the next level of pain, which is where they would uh, uh, cut off the hands and the feet of their captives. Um, and then ultimately what they would do is that they would impale them on poles like this, until they died. Once they died, they would then decapitate them and they would put their heads all along the wall of the city to send a message to anyone who would try to rival them that we are people who are not to be trifled with. And so as you begin to see people like this, uh, their reputation has clearly spread throughout the world. Jonah knows their reputation. Some scholars try to make all these connections um, with Jonah's family that perhaps some of his people were taken into Nineveh and, and destroyed. We don't know that, uh, that to be true. But Jonah knew of their wickedness. He knew of their war tactics. He knew of uh, the, the, the evil that these people possessed. And so in Jonah's heart, he's not wanting them to be saved. He doesn't want the mercy of God to come. He wants the judgment of God to fall. And so he's like, I'm not going to go preach to him because if I preach to him, and he even says this later, he says, I know that you're going to spare them. If I preach to him, I know that you're going to spare them, and I don't want them to be spared. Okay, so this is kind of the context of what we get. But in essence, Jonah's call was to reach this Gentile nation. This is what uh, the opening verses say. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay? So Jonah's call was to preach to the Gentile nation, even as a Jew, and he did not want to do that. Okay? This is a foreshadowing of Christ's command, the Great Commission, to go into all the world and to make disciples even to the Gentiles. This was a huge thing in the first century church. Um, Christianity, even by many Christians, was thought just to kind of be an offshoot of Judaism. They thought it was just another branch of Judaism. And what they came to find is that there was coming a point in the road because Paul, Barnabas, so many people around the world, they were seeing Gentiles converted. And so there was this huge meeting and discussion between the Jewish religious leaders. And Paul would come in and these different characters, they would come in and they would say, listen, I'm telling you they're Gentiles and they're speaking in tongues. I'm telling you they're, they're filled with the Spirit of God. They have been saved. What do we do with this? And at a pinnacle juncture um, in Acts chapter 15, the church decides, no, we're no longer an offshoot of Judaism. 
We, we are fully a, a new religion. We are, we are Christians, and it's not just for Jewish people. It is for the people of the world, which not only coincides with God's call to Jonah, but it coincides with Christ's call to us to go and make disciples of all the nations. And thank God he did because probably 99% of us in this room are Gentiles. Number two in your notes, Jonah was willing to sacrifice his life for others just as Jesus sacrificed his life for others. So Jonah flees the opposite direction of Nineveh. He finds a boat. He gets on it to, you know, go off in the other direction. He's rebelling against the Lord. A storm, the, the scripture says, the Lord hurled a storm onto the sea. It hits the boat. The boat is about to fall apart. And Jonah goes to these people and he says, listen, I am the reason for the storm. Throw me overboard, and if I die, the Lord will spare the ship. And so the sailors, they said, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. But he finally convinced them. They throw him overboard, and they are safe. Uh, God relents of the storm. Uh, the, the storm ceases. The point is this, is that Jonah, even though he was re rebellious in the sense regarding Nineveh, he was willing to die for people who were Gentiles. He was, his willingness was there because he, he wanted, he, there was the, the love of God existed within him, okay? In the same way, Jesus says this in John chapter 10. He says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. I lay it down voluntarily. And when we see Jonah willingly sacrifice, what, which should have been a sacrifice, he should have died when he was thrown overboard, but he was willing to sacrifice his life for the sake of others. We see that same type of disposition in the life of Jesus. Number three, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, just as Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. Now, this is um, what I call the purest form of typology, okay? It's an event that happened that Jesus makes the connection for us. The vast majority of, you know, nine out of ten of these, um, the connections we have to make for ourselves. But every now and then, you find a typology that Jesus connects it or Paul connects it or another writer connects it for us. And that is the most pure form of, of typology. So in Matthew 12, this is how Jesus connects it for us. He says, uh, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Moving on to the prophet Micah, Micah spoke of a ruler who was to come from Bethlehem just as this is seen in the life of Jesus. This is what Micah 5.2 prophesies. He says, you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. And so the Lord is prophesying through Micah, uh, one of the most powerful prophetic statements about Messiah ever, uh, that, that basically pinpoints the birthplace of the Messiah, which is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2 and, and various other gospels. Um, a, another foreshadowing of that, that that I'll just throw in here real quick, the, the word Bethlehem, the, the town of Bethlehem, when you go there, um, the, uh, the, the interpretation, the literal meaning of the word Bethlehem is the house of bread. In other words, bread is produced there. There are a lot of shepherds and different things there, but, but bread is produced there. And so in the same way, this is a picture typology where later in Jesus' life in the book of John, he would say what? He would say, I am the bread of life. 
come from Bethlehem, the house of bread. It's beautiful connections all throughout Scripture. The prophet Nahum spoke of the finality of judgment as seen in the book of Revelation. So about 150 years following Jonah, the Lord comes to revisit Nineveh. Where are they at? They repented, you know, centuries ago. Let me go and find if they have continued to walk with the Lord in in, uh, repentance or if they're back to their old ways. And as Nahum shows up about 150 years later, we find that Nineveh is back to her old habits and she's destroying people and, you know, back to all the, the barbarianism and all this kind of stuff. And so as the prophet Nahum begins to speak uh, as given utterance from the Lord, this statement is used multiple times in in just a very short section of Scripture. It's the Lord speaking to the Ninevites, and this is what he says. Notice the change from Jonah. Jonah is going and saying, listen, um, repent, turn to the Lord. if, If not, there's judgment coming, but if you repent and turn, he will grant you salvation. 150 years later, that tone has changed, and it's no longer the Lord saying, repent. The Lord saying, there's no more room for repentance. In other words, this is, this is no longer an appeal. This is a death decree. There's destruction that's coming for you. You've, you've crossed the line of mercy, right? Um, now, I know that, that in modern culture, that is very, even, even in Christian culture, that can be very um, offensive in some ways. Um, But I do think it's important for every person to understand um, that there is a a line where the mercy of God ends and the judgment of God begins. There is a point of no return. The trouble is none of us know where that line is. But I will grant you a little bit of sleep tonight and just say this. If If you have ever wondered, oh, did I do that? You don't have to worry about it because there's a sensitivity to the spirit of God. But I'm just making a statement that that basically says those who are in utter rebellion against God, there can come a time where the, the mercies of God have been extinguished, and now all that's left is the purifying judgment of God to come. This is where Nineveh finds itself in the life of Nahum. Okay, and it's a brief picture. You can read Nam. It is incredibly graphic. It 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 is um, it is sobering, and it is the Lord speaking to the people, saying, "This is how. This is how. This is how. This is how. I'm going to utterly cut you off from the face of the earth." The reason why I am against you now, because you've abused the mercy that was offered to you, and you've you've gone back to your old ways. It's a picture of the the finality of the judgment found in Revelation 20. So verses 14 and 15 say this, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? And so what that is painting a picture of is not just death or a second death. It's painting a picture of a complete, a not, like, like, like destruction to the, to the fullest extent. And what, ne- what Nahum is doing is he's giving an earthly picture of what will happen eternally for those who are not found in Christ, okay? Uh, so in that way, it's a foreshadowing. The, the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk spoke of the elevation of faith as seen in the new covenant. So Habakkuk 2 reminds us that the righteous shall live by faith, okay? But you've got to remember in Old Testament in the covenant system, uh, you, your salvation was, was based on the sacrifices that were made. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, okay? And so there was a system that was in place 
But what Habakkuk is doing, again, perhaps unknowingly, is speaking of the future covenant, whereas Paul would say it like this, clearly no one relies on the law No one who relies on the law or the system is justified before God. Why? Because the righteous shall live by faith. And so what we've done is we've we've seen a picture in the Old Testament about what's coming in the New Testament. That we're moving away from this law, this this binding, this sacrificial system, and we're moving to a place where the, the sacrificial system was taken care of in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, and now we live by faith. We are saved by faith. Um, Zephaniah spoke of the, the great day of the Lord, as also seen in the book of Second Peter and the book of Revelation. Uh, Haggai uh, spoke of God being with people, which is also seen in the life of Jesus. The Lord's messenger, Haggai, gave this message to the Lord, from, of the Lord to the people. I am with you. Okay, again, this is uh, a very short statement, um, but, but we need to realize that even if the Lord utters a fraction of a word, we must pay attention to that fraction of the word, that, that syllable there. But this is all he's saying. The prophet says, this is what the Lord says, I am with you. Okay, uh, that is sustaining grace for, for so many of us for a very long time. But what he's doing is he's not just saying in general, I'm with you. It's a prophetic statement. There's coming a time where I'm not just going to be with you, I'm going to be with you. Right? And so this is fulfilled in the book of Matthew all throughout the Gospels. Not only is Jesus called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. But even as Jesus goes to ascend, uh, he breathes on the disciples. And, and, and he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what Haggai is seeing here as he says, the Lord says, I am with you, is he's seeing, yes, in general, the Lord is with us, but there's coming a greater fulfillment of the Lord being with us that we are looking for, and thank God he's done that. Zechariah spoke of a royal, humble entry as seen in the life of Jesus. So Zechariah chapter 9 pretty much just prophesies Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay, you remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus saddles a, a, a young donkey, all this stuff. This is what Zechariah 9 says. Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so not only does he prophesy that, what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, when your king comes, it's going to be a lowly entry. And so, yes, we see the direct fulfillment of that um, on Palm Sunday as Jesus enters in on on the the cult. But we also see a humble entry into the planet. At at the birth of Jesus, the royal son of God. And listen to me say this. The king above every king, the God above every God, the Lord above every, the ruler above every ruler. How does he make his entrance to the planet? in a dirty manger, surrounded by who knows what, you know, uh, he makes his entry in a very humble place. And so, uh, again, the prophet is prophesying one thing, but it it finds itself in, in multiple fulfillments. And then finally, we find ourselves in the book of Malachi, and the prophet spoke of another great prophet as seen in the life of John the Baptist. Jesus would speak of this fulfillment in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, yes, I tell you, speaking of John, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one with whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. 
And this is how the Old Testament ends. The book of Malachi is giving us a taste of what's to come. He's saying, listen, there's not just going to be a messenger who's going to prepare the way. Yeah, there's going to be a messenger, but a Messiah is going to follow the messenger. And again, we thank God that he did. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for showing yourself, revealing yourself in so many different ways. And um, I'm grateful for your people. I pray that you'll continue to reveal yourself to us in a lot of different ways. And I pray that we'll mature, that we'll grow, that we'll learn to hear your voice and discern in all these ways. And I pray for your help and give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.